After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Would you bow your heads and pray with me once more, please? Father, this morning we see from the text a Messiah, a God who is able to meet our need in abundance, to be more than enough for us. We thank you this morning that even though this is true and yet we fail to trust it from time to time, you are faithful to who you are towards your people. And so we pray that as we consider the bread of life this morning, that we would, in the deeper spiritual reality, be feasting on he who is truly the bread of life. We would find in him nourishment and satisfaction beyond what we even need. Would you grant your spirit now that we might hear from your word, that we might respond to it in a way that builds us up in you and draws us nearer to the sanctuary we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're moving into chapter 6 under this theme of the bread of life because this very miracle that happens at the front of chapter 6 is what all of chapter 6 is about. If you turn ahead in your Bibles a little bit, you'll see that there's this miraculous event of Jesus walking on water after and then there is the, re- the meet-up again between Jesus and the crowds, and, and they're following him, and he says, hey, I know what it is you're actually looking for. And ultimately, he's going to reveal to them that what you're looking for right now that is not your true need is not what I'm here for. Over the next 71 verses in this chapter, Jesus extrapolates what the bread of life truly is and that, that it is a, this bread that he had given was just simply a sign of something else, something deeper and something more important. And I think it's important for us as we look at this passage and as we think about this word sanctuary being a place of refuge is that even in this miracle, we see Christ coming and actually providing sanctuary for us in a way. I don't know if you've ever taken some time to bake bread at home. If you haven't, it's a life-changing experience. When you bake bread at home, 
anyone who's there knows exactly what you're doing, don't they? Like, you know, if, as you get it as in the oven and it starts, to, that smell starts to permeate the kitchen, it's not long before the ears, the ears, nobody's hearing the smell, the, the noses in the home are, are, are perked up and thinking, I need to go find what the smell is. And they're drawn to it and they come in, what's going on? What are, what are you baking? Everybody knows the answer, but they ask it anyway, right? The smell seems to just permeate the home and create an atmosphere of welcome and joy, Right? And anticipation, more importantly. In a lot of ways, the smell of the bread is almost the more enjoyable, enjoyable part than even eating it, right? We look forward to that anticipation. And, and it's kind of like Christmas. You know, Christmas is this months-long thing that we lead up to one day, and it's gone before we even know it. But this bread that we're seeing Jesus pass out, this wasn't... And just simply, it was, in fact, an earthly kind of bread. It was a regular old barley bread that was made for, by poor people. That This was what they could afford. This was their normal peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch every day. Though they didn't have peanut butter and jelly, of course. But it was something that would have reminded them of their day-to-day need as they took these pieces of bread that Christ was distributing to this group of 5,000. And we know from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their telling of this story reveals that this was 5,000 men apart from women and children. And John alludes to this as well. As he said, there were 5,000 men. He uses the Greek word for men and not just the, the Greek word for people in general. So, so John is also telling us here, there are more than 5,000. There could have been upwards of ten to 20,000 people that Jesus fed. It's a pretty miraculous sign a pretty understandable, relatable sign, a simple gift of bread to a hungry group of people. Now, John is very, very particular, and of course, all the gospel writers are very particular about the signs that they include in their gospels. Um, but John is one who you know, says this sign and that sign, and we're moving on to the next sign. Um, it's important for us, as we see in chapter 6 at the beginning here, after Jesus went on to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Tiberias, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The signs are very important to the crowds. And we're going to see exactly where those crowds are with Jesus, even in these first 14 verses. But as John talks about signs, we should think back to that first sign. Do you remember? In John chapter 2, what was that first sign that Jesus performed? Do you know it? Yeah, he was at a wedding, and they ran out of wine, so he took some water that was meant for purification, not for drinking, but for cleaning, and he turned it into wine. He took a situation where they were running out of wine and gave them an abundance of wine, an even better wine, and now he's in a situation where they have completely run out of or have no hope of feeding people with bread, and he gives them an overabundance of bread. Well, this sign takes place in Bethsaida, which is a town, a smaller town near Galilee. Um, this is a, a small town of, of really mostly poor people who this sign really spoke to because their main focus boiled down to their main need, which was just bread and, and drink, food and drink, food and water, what they needed. Their daily needs were their number one focus. And so this would have been a sign that spoke very clearly to this large group of people. But again, what was it that drew them? They saw the signs, and so they started following Jesus. Can you blame them for their curiosity? 
You know, John is very particular about how people respond to Jesus here. So, so when he says that they're coming because they saw the signs, he's not saying, hey, they saw the signs and they believed. Otherwise, he would have said, they saw the signs and they believed. What he's saying here is that there's, there's just a simple, basic, natural curiosity that's going on with this huge crowd. They, they had heard probably about the miracle at Cana and the other signs that had happened, the healing of the official son and some other things that had happened in between there that John leaves out. And he confesses that he leaves them out in the end of his gospel too. They were following him because of the signs. And the setting of this is so important too. Because the setting in time we see in verse 4 is that it was near the time of Passover. And this was, as John says here, again, look at verse 4, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, he's writing to mostly Gentile audience, an audience that wasn't Jewish, that many people might have picked up his book and said, well, I don't know what the Passover is. I've never heard of that. But to the Jews, it wasn't simply the story of back in Exodus of how Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. To them, it was like the 4th of July, only far greater than how we celebrate our own patriotic holidays. This would have been something that, of course, meant to have spiritual value. God designed Passover to be a thing that they could constantly look back in their history and say, God is faithful to what he said he's going to do. He provides for our needs. He saves us. Yet for a large group of people in this time, particularly while the Roman Empire ruled over their nation, would have been a reminder that God has done some things in the past that we'd really like to see again. We'd really like to see maybe another Moses show up and deliver us from Rome, deliver us from King Herod. He's not even a real king. He's more like an appointed Roman governor than anything else, and he's taking the, the this most important seat of king of Israel wrongfully. So while they were thinking about Moses and the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost so that the angel of death might pass over the people of Israel and, and the, the firstborn son would be saved, and they're thinking about the wandering in the wilderness, the parting of the Red Sea, and particularly, of course, as we see John pointing out this matter of Passover in relation to the bread of life, they would also have been thinking about the manna in the wilderness, how God miraculously provided bread from the heavens. If you don't know, in the Hebrew, it's really cool, the word for manna is simply translated to English, what is it? So they called this bread that came from the sky, what is it? No idea what to call it. Pretty good name. And so this bread, just as miraculously, in some ways even more miraculously it would seem, as it is as given to this large crowd of people, they are also pretty clueless about what it truly means. So Jesus is standing on this mountain with his disciples, followed by a hungry crowd who had been listening to him preach for a good long while, unable to head back home in time to make dinner. We see in this a miracle of Christ's divine creative power. We see his glory and his ability to make something out of nothing. Just as this harkens back to the Passover, it also should remind us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke things into existence, and they simply were. Christ shows his divinity, his godness, by making something out of nothing and providing for everyone. 
this immediately kind of calls us to this question of whether we are or whether we can trust Christ for our needs. Particularly in this first month of the year, thinking about a new year and new needs and new challenges and new things to be concerned about. Are you trusting Christ to meet your needs? And maybe a more important is, can you trust him? Is he trustworthy? Do you have the capacity to trust him is one thing, but is Christ trustworthy with your needs in the year ahead, particularly as we look back on 2020 and 2021? You know, in a lot of ways, we kind of look at 2022 as just the year 2020 part three, right? I mean, a lot of what we're, we're seeing so far just in these first nine days, it's like, well, it's more of the same, more of what we've kind of been dreading and wanting to get away from. And maybe there are more specific things than just a pandemic going on in your life. Maybe that's tertiary to your, it's, it's just on the outskirts of your mind. There's, there's other things that are more forefront that you're concerned about and wondering, can Christ really meet my need? Maybe you're saying, I know that he can and I know I'm supposed to say that, but really my practical actions are showing I'm trying to meet my own needs on my own here. So while Christ in this miracle is calling us to understand that he wants to and is able to meet our needs daily as the true bread of life, I mean, spoiler alert, there's 71 verses here, but when he gets to the explanation of the sign, he says, look, I am the bread of life. You don't need that little piece of barley bread. You need me. As that is what he is calling us to in this passage, in this chapter, we see that our challenge is a matter often of seeing our temporary needs and lining them up with our abilities or our circumstances and seeing that it doesn't equate, we end up looking elsewhere to find satisfaction. We may, in fact, think that the guy Jesus that we get together and talk about on Sunday mornings is really just for this little corner of our life and, and, and for this time in our week and for this part of our schedule, but, but doesn't really have any overflow into the rest of our life. We may think that these temporary things are too big for Jesus, even though our theology tells us otherwise. We may think that Jesus doesn't really understand what it is that we're going through because well, how could he? This is my life, my problems, my difficulties, my needs, very particular to where I am. Well, to consider the text again, we see as these, this huge crowd is following Jesus, Jesus actually asks the question that is probably on the minds of all the other disciples. As the day is slowing down and Jesus is even showing like, hey, I'm kind of done teaching for the day. I'm going to keep moving back into the mountains and, you know, the crowd's following because, of course, they are. Their curiosity hasn't run out. That's the kind of impact that Jesus has on people, whether they're actually believing that he is who he says he is or understanding that or not. He still draws a crowd. And so Jesus, in verse 5, asks the question that probably all the disciples are hoping nobody's going to say, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Can you imagine? It's very interesting because Philip is pushed forward in verse 7. And I say pushed forward because I kind of imagine that the disciples are like, Philip, you're from here. Go answer Jesus' question. Kind of, you know, put him up to the front. And Philip says, look, if, if I had eight months of wages, 
I wouldn't be able to go and buy enough food for everyone to even get a taste. They would still be hungry. This is impossible. There is no place that we could buy bread that these people could eat. So the test is revealed. We see that in verse 6, that Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he said this to test him and to test the disciples as well. Philip the Bethsaidan says, hey, there's nothing we can do here. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, shows up too and says, look, it's kind of funny. A commentator says, if Andrew would have stopped short in the middle of a sentence, he would have said a really good thing. Because he comes up and says, hey, there's a, there's a boy here. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. If the period would have come there instead of a comma, he would have been really good. You kind of imagine Jesus saying, exactly, that's right, let's get going. Watch, what this, watch what's going to happen now, right? Could have moved on from there. But unfortunately, Andrew has just as much doubt as Philip does. What are they for so many? Andrew doesn't present the boy with his five loaves and fish and say, I found the solution, Jesus. He would have felt very embarrassed if that was the plan he was going to do. This is, this is what I'm going to come up with. Jesus is going to be very impressed with what I've produced here. No, Andrew knows. What is the point of even trying to distribute this? It's, it's very fascinating. Uh, more critical scholasticism has looked at this passage and, and in an effort to try to remove the miraculous out of, out of anything in Scripture, and particularly in association with Jesus, have looked at this story and said, hey, the truth of how this really worked is the little boy showed up. He said, look, I have five barley loaves and a couple fish. And then everyone else said, you know, we just didn't want to share our lunches, so we've been hiding them the whole time, acting like we don't have anything either. And then they all got out their lunches, and they shared with people who didn't have enough, and blah, blah, blah. And the moral of the story is, if you'll just share what you have, then everybody will have what they need. I hope you can tell from just a simple reading of this that that is not what John's trying to get at. That that is certainly not the point of this sign, and it's certainly not what happened now, it may be easy as you're reading through this passage, and particularly as you consider, boy, I know this story, the feeding of the 5,000, and this guy's going to talk about it for five weeks. Good grief. What is there to talk about? You might have read this and kind of missed the miraculous thing that happened. Because Christ has superseded the temporary needs and the temporary means by his divine power. But he started it with a test. He didn't just say, hey, have everybody sit down and I'm going to do a pretty wonderful thing here. He starts with a test before the glory is revealed. I want you to imagine being there, but, but it would be pr probably easier to imagine yourself at home and imagine Jesus knocking on your door. And first, there's the context of imagining that Jesus just does this from time to time and everything's normal about that. But imagine Jesus knocks on your door and he says, hey, I'm here for dinner. And you might say, huh. I love having Jesus over for dinner. I mean, boy, I think we can, you know, spare a slice of pizza for the guy or something like that. That's, that's no problem. But, man, having Jesus at dinner, wow, I feel pretty special when he's over here. That's, that's really great. But he shows up with 20,000 of his friends. And he knocks on your door and says, hey, what's for dinner? I'm hungry. By the way, so are they. I can't get rid of them. They keep following me around everywhere. I even went to your house, and they still followed me there. Can you believe it? How will they be satisfied? Where can we buy bread? Well, good grief, especially in 2020 part three that we're in right now. You might imagine that going to the grocery store, you say, I don't even know if Aldi has enough bread to feed all these people. 
They'd run, the shelves would be empty. I emphasize this to show you that Andrew and Philip are not just nonchalantly saying like, hey, we, I really, Jesus, you had such a great plan of trying to feed these people. That's so nice. But we just can't do it. We're going to have to send them home. Of course, that's what the disciples and the other gospels telling of this story, other disciples come in and say, hey, just send them home. They're hungry. Let them go back home and eat. But Jesus is doing this as a test to see how we are viewing our needs in relation to him. So there's the first failure, Philip and Andrew, and their understanding of their own means to satisfy the test that Christ has presented to them. Now let's consider, even after the miracle, how the crowds kind of fail the test as well. In verse 14, after they had eaten and they were all full and there were leftovers, it says the people saw the sign that he had done. You remember from the beginning, this is why they followed him in the first place. They saw signs. They were curious. Jesus is an interesting fellow, but when my curiosity dies down, I'm out of here. They saw the sign that he had did, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When they say the prophet, they're talking about something way back in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses had said. Moses told the people of Israel, after they had been taken out of slavery in Egypt and as they were going to go into the promised land, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Why are they associating him with Moses? Because Passover is happening. Because it's all on their minds. Because they're looking at what Jesus did, and some of them, perhaps, who are thinking, why now, why here, why this? Passover. The manna. The manna from heaven that God just made rain down every day for 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus just did something even as miraculous. He has to be the prophet who is to come into the world. What is a prophet? A prophet is just somebody who speaks to God's people on behalf of what God has said. But when we talk about the prophet, we're talking about somebody who is set apart. It was very different. When Moses said this, I don't imagine that he knew all of what Jesus truly was going to come and do and, and who he really was beyond this idea of being God's man to the people. They looked at Jesus and saw Moses 2.0, the latest and greatest, the road to freedom from Rome, the way to get rid of Herod, maybe even to get rid of Caesar if he's good enough. He can make uh, thousands of pieces of bread out of just a couple of little kids' lunch. I mean, what else could this guy do? You know, if nothing else, he could just keep making bread and we could just keep throwing them at the Roman soldiers. Not a very good battle strategy, but... Again, this is pretty obvious to them that Jesus is at least like Moses, and Moses saved the people out of Israel in their minds. That's what they're seeing here, and they're ready to believe that. That that they saw the sign and how they interpreted the sign, how they saw their needs and how they saw a God who could fit and meet their needs in the way that they would like to see done. See, this test that Jesus gave to the disciples is also a test that is going to start rooting out unbelief in this large crowd. We, we talked about crowds before in the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, and, and, and it goes against everything that we think as a modern people to, to rid out people from a crowd. 
We want the Sundays where all the pink chairs are filled and, and people are lined up at the door and, and we want more and more people to come in and that would be a sign to us that everything's going well and that we're doing a good job. But Jesus places this test for his disciples in the context of this group of, again, maybe 20,000 people to show that there are those who are looking for something other than what I have to offer and I can't give them otherwise. They see Christ as an answer to temporary things. They don't see him to be the more than enough than he truly is. I wonder today if Jesus is testing you in some way. If he's testing you in trusting him and, and, and knowing that he can meet your needs beyond what you could even think or imagine. And that those needs were placed by him. Remember, Jesus could have any, at any point in his preaching the day, the day earlier in the day, he could have looked at the crowds and said, hey guys, I'm going to just stop right here so you can all go home and eat. Because if we don't leave by now, the sun's going to go down, it's going to get dangerous to travel, and y'all have kids, and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to send you all home because that's very practical. This was not a spur of the moment. He had a very important intention for this whole sign here. And what you actually see, if you look forward in verse 66, again, the Bible is something we want to spoil the ending for so that we can think rightly about it. This is after Jesus had um, said, I am the bread of life, and unless you eat my flesh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's verse 55 and 56. I apologize. But then after all of that, it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That crowd of 20,000. John doesn't just say, hey, a couple of them said, I don't know about this whole eating flesh and drinking blood thing. That's a little weird. No, he's saying many. That is, at one point, Jesus is sitting around a crowd of almost 20,000 and his disciples, and some of his disciples apparently represented in this crowd as well. And the difference after he said these things was dramatic. Many of them left. They no longer walked with him. They saw that there was something deeper that Christ was providing, and they didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't understand it, because it didn't sound relevant. And yet there's nothing more relevant than what Christ has to offer us today, particularly when it comes to our daily needs. That is, again, why this sign was a sign of multiplying bread, a simple, basic need of every single person. At the time, I know a lot of us are G-free now, and bread is not a thing, but bread represents the basic need of food in your life. So is the Lord testing you today? Is he looking to see what you will do? Because as he's looking to see what you will do, he also knows what he is going to do. See, the disciples, Philip and Andrew, thought, hey, I got the right answer here. The answer is, we can't buy bread. The crowds thought, we've got the right answer here, too. We want Jesus to be our new Moses and to take over Rome. And this curiosity has led them to idolatry, and they think that they have the right answer, and they do not. So do we, like Philip and Andrew, become hopeless because our means don't seem to meet the end? Or perhaps are we like the crowd making Jesus out to just be another Moses? A political figure. The one who's going to come and fix everything from the White House. Sorry, from 
the throne in Jerusalem? How is your focus on temporary things disrupting your satisfaction in Christ today? Because I guarantee you it is in some way. In some way, your focus on the temporal, the things that have to happen next in this day, are at least pressing in your life, trying to divert your attention away from Christ. Because we know we have an enemy of our souls who wants to do that. He doesn't just show up at your house on Thursday nights in a red costume with a pitchfork and, and say, hey, I'm the devil, I'm here to tempt you to sin. He wants to work in the midst of all your needs and tell you, boy, where's God in all this? Don't you think he's going to show up? I mean, man, it's about time for him to do something miraculous to, to meet your needs the way you'd like to see met. All the while, our sinful flesh, our old nature, is crying out to be satisfied in the way that, that puts us in a comfortable place that, that we can say, this is the prophet that has come into the world and this is what I want from Jesus and this is how he will behave in my life. If you remember from Chronicles of Narnia, towards the end of the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, who uh, leaves, leaves the, the castle, leaves the kids after they've been crowned kings and queens of Narnia, and he leaves, and Lucy looks out and says, where is he going? Why isn't he staying? And uh, Mr. Tumnus says, well, he's not a tame lion. He's, he's not here just for whatever you want from him. He's in charge. He's the true king of Narnia. And so Christ with us is not simply someone we can tack on and say, yeah, you know, whenever I need this, I can go in this direction. Whenever I need this, I can go to Jesus. And he won't be one among many means. He will only be Lord. And he will do so by showing us that he is more than enough for our needs. Because again, remember, this is a test. He said this to test him, to test Philip, to test the disciples, to test the crowds. For he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus is not coming in and responding to your conflict as though he doesn't know what's going on. He's coming in and responding as bringing in that missing puzzle piece that was designed perfectly to fit. That he is the one who not only knew, but ordained that the things that you find need in should happen, and that you should find your needs satisfied in Christ, and that he is more than enough, that he knows what he will do to satisfy your needs in any and every circumstance, that he is, in fact, the bread of life that was broken so that his glory would be revealed in all of this. He always knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do on the mountain. He knew what he was going to do at the cross. When he was crucified and executed as a criminal, he went in according to his father's will. Excuse me. <clears throat> he went according to his father's will. Even though it looked like he had lost, he was walking in the victory of obeying his father. Because it was at the cross that the, the needs of all of his people were met perfectly and abundantly. Now Christ is the only means for satisfying our deepest need, which is the matter of our sin. And we see the matter of our sin in this desire to find our needs fulfilled elsewhere or defined other than how God has defined them, to rebel against God, even in the sense of saying, well, I, I know better what I face than you do. Christ is the true bread of life, and he was broken so that we might have life. His body was broken and multiplied to feed 
a multitude far beyond the 20,000 or whatever that was there, but, but his body was broken so that we might have spiritual life and so that all who believe by faith alone in Christ would be saved. It's important again to mention that these barley loaves are the bread of the poor, so Christ is the bread for those who humble themselves and believe for salvation. Not those who say, I've figured something out, or I know exactly what Christ needs to do for me, or anything to that effect, but simply those who by faith receive what Christ has for them. We don't escape the penalty of sin by our own doing, like the disciples, or by our own planning and perceiving, like the crowds. Neither can we pass the test except we look to the risen Christ. Unless we look to Jesus and say, you who conquered death can meet all my needs, whatever your needs are. Jesus doesn't look at your needs and say, I don't care, they're petty, they're unimportant. He says, no, I I see your needs as a fruit of a deeper root of the sin problem. I'm going to meet the need there and begin in your life to grow new fruit and new life in all of these things that you find need in. We see the abundance of that again in verses 12 and 13. When, when they had given all the bread out to everybody who asked, and they had given them second and thirds, and they were full, it says they gathered up, sorry, in verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, 12 baskets, you know, we might look at that and say, oh, 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, 12, 12 is Maybe, but there were also 12 disciples, and there were also about that much bread. The point is not so much the number of baskets. The point is the abundance of the sign. The point is that we'll never come to a place where Jesus says, oh, I just don't quite have enough for you. The fact is I don't only have enough. I have more than enough than what you need. And that to satisfy us beyond what we can think or imagine. Jesus doesn't just try to avoid wastefulness, but he reveals abundance in these leftovers, that he is indeed more than enough. You remember back to the manna that was given to Israel in the wilderness, and the rule was you could collect enough for the day, but you couldn't collect any more. You couldn't save any for the day ahead, and and imagine that you could say, like, I'll trust in myself because I'll just collect a little extra. No, the point was, God was saying, at this time, I want you to trust me day by day. And not think, well, it's Sunday, I'm going to gather enough for Sunday, and then I'm going to gather some for Monday. And everybody who did that, their Monday manna went wasted. It was was no good by the time the day came. But this bread was different. This bread is shown to be greater than that manna. Because Christ is greater than Moses. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all that Moses had done. Without bread or food, we die. And without the bread of life, we have nothing to stop the permanency of death. Nothing to bring us into the sanctuary of eternal life. To bring us into the presence of God, which is our deepest need. And in so many cases, in our minds, our most distant need. Christ is more than enough. His glory is revealed. Just as in John 1.14, John wrote, The word became flesh, that is Jesus. He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is his purpose in this sign. But lastly, I want you to consider what you need to do in light of this. What is the completion of this in your life? How can you walk in light of this passage? So now that we are in Christ and we have that bread of life and and we we can feast 
from the Word. We can feast from prayer. We can feast on, on fellowship and in worship uh, to engage in this bread of life that's been given to us. What was the job of the disciples here? What's fascinating is, as Jesus says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat and knew that this was a test? The answer ultimately being, well, there's nowhere we can buy bread, but there is one who can provide it, and it is him. So what is the job of the disciples again? J.C. Ryle, a pastor in the 1800s, said that the true role of ministry is to bring bread prepared by the master. That's it. It's symbolic, I know. But in your heart and mind, does it not ring of joy and of simple faith? To just simply say, my job as a Christian is to call others into the sanctuary of who Christ is, to not create something that is appealing to the modern eye, something that is uh, going to immediately seem to satisfy the needs that people think they have, but rather to distribute the bread of life to those who truly need it. This is what God is calling us to through this sign today. This test that Jesus gave is is a test. It's not a trick question, is it? A good teacher designs a test for students in a way that they might succeed in it, right? You don't test on material you haven't covered. Everything in the last five chapters of John have led up to this point to where the disciples should have said, well, surely, Lord, you could do something for these people. Surely you who changed water into wine, you who uh, healed this, this man's son, you who've done so many wonderful things, healed the crippled man at the pool on the Sabbath, who so many wonderful things have happened, of course you can meet our needs in this moment, and that is where we need to land today. Of course, Lord, you can meet my needs. And of course you can meet the needs I see in other people's lives. Give me the bread and I'll offer it to them. Jesus doesn't say, hey, here's the bread of life. Could you put a nice bow on it? Maybe put it in a nice bag. Maybe put a coupon in it for another loaf of bread. And it's, no, it's delivered to us, and the appeal is within itself. We're called not to convince people, not to compel them or constrain them to partake in the bread of life, but we are called to deliver it, trusting that Christ is more than enough to simply call people to the table, to feast on the bread of life, and to have everything they need in him. I throw this quote a lot, and I'm going to keep doing it because it's so good. St. Augustine said in a prayer in his confessions, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And so as you think of leaving this place and how to walk in light of this passage and the call of God in your life regarding the bread of life and regarding the fact that you'll meet people who need that bread of life, consider that the command that Christ has given you to testify to who he is, to offer sanctuary to people who need him, is satisfied in what he has provided for you. When Jesus gives you a task, he already knows what he is going to do. In your marriage, at work, at home, in your pain, in your suffering, in your struggles, as you see needs so clearly, Jesus knows what he's going to do. When you say, Lord, what are you going to do about this? He doesn't say, I'll get back to you tomorrow. I'm not sure yet. He has it all worked out. He has it figured out. And it is our job to live in light of that confidence and to testify to others of who he is. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this morning we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that in your goodness we find all of our needs met to be more than enough, to be in abundance. It's not simply be a matter of let's not waste any of the good that God is doing, but to recognize that all of the grace, all of that unmerited favor, all of that good that we don't deserve 
is meant to pour out in our lives as if we don't know what to do with it all. Lord, in the midst of the needs that are on our hearts and minds this morning, would you so impress on us your power in Christ and what he has done on our behalf and his work at the cross and his resurrection from death and sin that the needs we'll face this afternoon and this week and this month and this year are more than met in you. We will praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.